Hello, and welcome to One World, One Health, a place to talk about the planet and our problems. Climate, human health, and animal health are all connected, and the One Health approach recognizes how much all of us on this planet rely on one another. This podcast is brought to you by the One Health Trust, with bite-sized insights into ways to help. If something's alive, it's evolving, and nothing evolves faster than microbes such as bacteria, viruses, and fungi. They can all quickly change to resist the effects of antibiotics and other drugs used to fight them, something called antimicrobial resistance. These superbugs directly kill more than a million people a year. You might think drug companies are racing one another to bring new antimicrobials to market, but they aren't. In this episode, we're chatting with Kevin Outerson, a professor of law at Boston University and the founding executive director and principal investigator of Combating Antibiotic-Resistant Bacteria Biopharmaceutical Accelerator, or CARBEX, a global nonprofit partnership working to speed the development of new life-saving antimicrobials. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So tell us just where we stand. Are drug companies pumping out all sorts of new antibiotics and antimicrobials? The earlier you go in the research and development process, the more optimistic the story will be. If you look at the basic research labs, uh, the universities, and the early work being done by uh, lots of the small companies in this space, amazing science, really interesting things. So the, the problem, in my view, isn't predominantly you know, the bottleneck isn't scientific, it's really economic. And then the closer you get to the market, because of these economic difficulties, the more bankruptcies you see, the more companies that are struggling and getting out, the more dire uh, the situation looks. So great science, especially early, and the areas that we work at at Carbex, and the economics grind them into the ground when they get closer to reaching patients. Now, when you talk about the economics, what do you mean? It just doesn't pay to, to make these antibiotics? You know, these are extremely valuable drugs to society, but uh, what did you pay for your last antibiotic? I mean, typically the copay at, at Walmart is uh, is $4, you know, for an antibiotic. They're, they're wonderful drugs that are largely very inexpensive. And if the, a company spends 10 or 15 years bringing a brand new antibiotic to market, the first thing that the company wants to do is to sell it to try to reimburse their investors. But uh, for excellent reasons, all the doctors and in the health systems want to keep that antibiotic on the shelf and save it for when we absolutely need it at some point in the future. And so we have this situation in which the new antibiotics reach the market. There's, they're given a label from the World Health Organization as reserve, Oldman Reserve. That's wonderful uh, for health and long-term global health, but it's a disaster for the company. When they get FDA approval, it's time for them to make money. Instead, they watch their antibiotic not sell very much. And so we need to think about a, a different way to pay for antibiotics because they're extraordinarily valuable to society, but that's not being reflected in the way the R&D is being reimbursed. Okay. You, you've, you've introduced a lot of ideas here and the idea of keeping a drug in reserve. Let's go back a little bit and talk about why we need these new drugs and why some of them might be extra special and extra valuable. Well, when you think about every drug class in human history, you know, anti-cancer drugs or heart disease drugs or pain drugs or anything, probably the most impactful, the most biggest bang on helping human health has been the antimicrobials led by antibacterials, antibiotics. Most important thing in human history in terms of a drug class. But um, unlike most drugs, like cancer drugs or aspirin, 
or heart disease drugs. These drugs, because of the biological factor of resistance, the fact that evolution causes the bacteria to develop uh, traits that make the antibiotics less effective against them. These are the only drugs in which we need a sustainable, renewable strategy because the moment they're invented, that's the peak of their effectiveness. You know, they begin to lose it immediately. So, you know, aspirin was invented more than 100 years ago. It still works great on me, hopefully on you too. Um, but antibiotics, the best antibiotic we've seen in maybe in history, you need to recreate that in every generation. And so the, the R&D challenges are uniquely different in this space. And that's because these microbes quickly develop resistance the minute a drug hits the market. Sometimes some of the, the microbes already are resistant, right? There are already resistant microbes out there. The drug hits the market, and those are the microbes that then succeed. Yeah, and, but it's not um, it's not instantaneous with bacteria. It's a it's a slower moving process. The bacterial genome is larger than a virus, and so while we saw billions of cases of COVID and, and relatively quick uh, emergence of of global varieties that may or may not be covered by the vaccines quite as perfectly as we hope. And every year we get a different flu vaccine because the flu changes remarkably year from year. Bacteria move more slowly, but uh, you're right. It's without a doubt that that uh, the more you use it, the more resistance develops. And we want these drugs, these antibiotics to last for 50 or 100 years, not you know five or 10 or 20 years. And so that means let's take good care of them. Uh, we call that stewardship. Let's use them only where necessary. Let's not waste them in agricultural uses for which they don't help or in uses in people for which we don't need them. You know, Taking an antibiotic when you have a virus, it doesn't do you any good. It actually harms your microbiome. It also accelerates resistance for the rest of us. So we need to protect them uh, because eventually they will go away. But uh, my goal is, you know, on the stewardship side would be that we put plans into place so that the next new antibiotic could last for 100 years. That's a worthy goal. And so why can't a company just develop one that will last longer? Why can't they come up with the science to make them more flexible? You know, you're asking a lot from a company that may only have 14 years left on its patent to create a drug that's going to last 100 years, but there's almost no sales during those first 14 in which the company has the patent. You know, how are they supposed to reimburse the investors for the several hundred million dollars worth of, of R&D that was put into it? Uh, so we have to think about a different way to pay for these drugs. We call those D-linked pool incentives, things like subscription models that are coming out of the United Kingdom and some other G7 countries. Why can't governments just either pay up front or develop these drugs themselves so the companies don't have to worry about losing money? The subscription models are paid for by governments. And so you know that the idea of push incentives like Carbex that I lead or pull incentives like a subscription model, these ultimately are paid for by governments. And especially the, the governments of the wealthier countries will contribute more. But maybe your question was, why can't the government just take over the entire function for antibiotic R&D? And to that, I'd say, I can't name, you know, at, at least in, in the U.S., where I'm most familiar, but or in Europe, any research-intensive product that is entirely produced by the government without cooperation and partnership with private industry. Or maybe you can, but uh, even things that the government provides, like a bridge, you know, they hire private companies to do the engineering and installation. Uh, or if the military, which is a very government function, the government doesn't build the tank or missile themselves. They re recognize the fact that they set the parameters and the, what, what's needed, and then they put it out to bid uh, to private companies who are able to actually execute more efficiently. So, you know, I, I would like to hear a research-intensive product that actually is produced in 
entirely by a government and, and that we're happy with the way that's working. And so I think what's more likely is private partner, pub, you know, public-private partnerships with the government and private industry and academia, public health stakeholders working together to get the sort of antibiotics we really need, make sure the companies don't get bankrupt, and make sure we have an adequate supply of these so that the 1.27 million people that the Lancet article tells us are dying each year from resistant bacterial infections, that these people actually have something that works for them, not just in the high-income countries, but everywhere in the world. And of course, that's what you're trying to do with Carbex. Can you tell us a little bit about Carbex? Carbex is nonprofit. We make grants. We also give the small companies that dominate the space a lot of technical, scientific, and business help because usually they're quite small. They, they do what they do extraordinarily well, you know, if they have 10 or 15 people, but they need additional help and they're not getting it today from the rest of the ecosystem. So Carbex has been awarded uh, over 800 million US dollars since our founding in 2016. We spend that money to support the preclinical from head to lead all the way to the end of phase one a pipeline for therapeutics, prevention, including vaccines and diagnostics globally. Uh, we're funded by three governments, the US, the UK and Germany and two foundations, the Wellcome Trust and the Gates Foundation. And collectively, our vision is to ensure that highly innovative antibacterials, you know, these products that are therapeutics, prevention or diagnostics, uh, don't die in that valley of death, that they actually get the money they need so that it can progress to the end of the phase one trials. So you're supporting this, this research and development early in the process. Tell us what the valley of death is. We start uh, at hit to lead, which is that the company has an idea, has uh, some chemistry, a series of drugs that might work, a series of molecules, really. And they're, they're testing it, beginning the early test in the Petri dish to find out you know, which one of the many in their lab actually works. So it's very early research. It's frequently just out of universities. In a healthier market like cancer, there's lots of private investment in this preclinical and early clinical space when it begins testing in humans. And that's because cancer drugs make a lot of money, right? Yeah, right. They make a lot of money. And uh, that drives not only lots of private investment in the preclinical space, there's over a thousand cancer products in clinical trials in humans right now. So money does drive the R&D agenda. But for antibiotics, not so much. For antibiotics, there's, there's a real shortage of, of truly innovative products in the clinical pipeline, things that are being tested in people today. WHO has looked at this and, you know, declared that it's it's grim. And then uh, on the earlier stages, we see lots of amazing science coming out of the universities, things that have been funded by national institutes like the NIH in the U.S. or uh, their equivalents in many other countries. But these little companies that are spun out need some money to take it from the idea stage until it's ready to actually be tested in a person. And that is the valley of death for antibacterials right now. There's no money, private money, to help those companies get over that hurdle. And Carbex is the largest funder in that space. Where we start, you know, at the hit to lead stage, we're about 12 or 13 years away from any sort of approval by the FDA. So we're, we're developing today, you know, supporting at Carbex, things that, that are not for tomorrow, but are for the next decade and decade after. You know, if you want good drugs in the 2030s and 2040s, you know, you, you'll see these projects at Carbex today. It just takes time. Now, you're a professor of law. Are there legal barriers that people might not think about in the, the effort to develop better antimicrobials? 
the way I got into this field was I was studying the way the intellectual property law, you know, patents, et cetera, how they function well and sometimes not so well in drug innovation more generally, and then became fascinated with how they are uniquely challenging when it comes to antibiotics. And so I don't think there's a problem with our patent system with antibiotics, but there's clearly a problem in the way that we pay for antibiotics, how we reimburse for them. It's not so much a straight up legal barrier, but it's it's changing the way we think about this. Um, one analogy is the fire protection equipment. I'm sitting at Boston University right now, and in the ceiling, there's fire protection equipment. Uh, the people who built that were paid for that equipment decades ago. And the workers who installed it were paid on the day that they installed it. We're not waiting until there's a fire that breaks out to pay for the fire protection equipment in my office. You know, we pay for it in advance so that we're prepared. For antibiotics, for the first decades and years of antibiotics, we paid for them only after the fire starts, you know, when a patient is sick. And the amazing change that people are embracing is that we need to pay for antibiotics in a different way, thinking about them more as preparing than response. And uh, that is the subscription model that the United Kingdom is pioneering. That is the bill in the United States, the Pasteur Act, and similar efforts in other G7 countries to change the way that we pay for antibiotics. I think that's the most fundamental legal shift that has to happen. Uh, we're at a tipping point. You know, there's every week that goes by, I hear of another company that calls it quits. And some of these are public companies and many of them are private, just little affairs. I, I wonder how many highly trained antibacterial R&D people are left in the world. A lot of these people, like microbiologists, they have skills that can transfer to other areas. And there's only so much of not getting paid that you can take before you need to pay the mortgage. And it's understandable that this is not a lucrative field that doesn't attract new talent. This is a drug class that needs a sustainable plan. We can't just do one and done for antibacterials. We have to think about how we're going to do this for generations, continue a, a research effort that sustains across our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, right? So we definitely need to think about this more like piece of infrastructure. You know, it's a it's the water pipes in Boston, or it's a bridge across an important uh, you know roadway or something. Because those assets we protect and plan and and maintain. But antibiotics, nobody's really protecting and maintaining it as an infrastructure asset, and we should. So, what can governments globally do? Can kind of the the global community help on this? There's two big things that are happening. The first is that the G7, you know, the, the seven wealthiest countries on earth have been working on this issue for some time. And Germany headed the G7. They were the presidency last year. They specifically called out Carbex and GuardP and Secure, a project at WHO, things that need to be supported in order to turn the tide against drug-resistant bacteria. Um, that will continue this year with Japan being the leader. And in May, there's several interesting things that Japan may be able to announce as they make progress on this issue. The second is that the United Nations rarely holds high-level meetings on infectious diseases, and they're going to hold one, help, they're going to have one in September of 24 on antimicrobial resistance, which is a follow-through from an earlier meeting a couple of years ago. But it enables the governments of the world to each say, what are we doing ourselves and what are we doing together to address this problem? So I'm very hopeful for concrete suggestions that follow with funding that have the support, not just of the health ministries, but also the financial uh, ministries, the people with money, so that uh, collectively we can do something useful against this problem. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Listeners can share this podcast, which is brought to you by the One Health Trust, by email, LinkedIn, or your favorite social media platform. 
and let us know what else you'd like to hear about at owoh at onehealthtrust.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to One World, One Health, brought to you by the One Health Trust. I'm Ramanan Lakshmi Narayan, founder and president of the One Health Trust. You can subscribe to One World, One Health on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at One Health Trust, one word, for updates on One World, One Health, and the latest in research on One Health issues like drug resistance, disease spillovers, and the social determinants of health. Finally, please do consider donating to the One Health Trust to support this podcast and other initiatives and research that help us promote health and well-being worldwide. Until next time.